Just before you listen to this episode of Hollywood Sources, let me tell you that you can come and join us live for a special recording on the 21st of March as we mark 25 years of devolution. Already confirmed, Alex Salmond, Jack McConnell, Henry McLeish, all former First Ministers of Scotland, of course. You can hear them in conversation, ask them your questions, make your points as well. Come along and see us. Get your tickets at hollywoodsources.com forward slash live. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hollywood Sources podcast is brought to you in association with the Royal Bank of Scotland. The Royal Bank has been part of Scottish communities for almost 300 years, helping businesses thrive, growing the economy, supporting customers to manage their money and to fulfil their financial dreams. From the world's first overdraft to the first fully fledged internet banking service, the Royal Bank of Scotland has always innovated to make banking easier for customers. Today, the Royal Bank supports around one in three Scottish businesses and is one of the largest banks in Scotland for personal customers. It also remains one of Scotland's largest private sector employers, contributing millions of pounds to the economy each year. As we approach the Royal Bank's third centenary in 2027, the bank's commitment to Scotland and to championing the potential of the people, families and businesses who call Scotland their home remains as strong as ever. The podcast starts now. My problem with Rando is that it, it won't work. So the hard question is, what are you going to do instead? Um, 
And I think that while the Conservatives say that they are being tough on the borders and beefing up the policing and so on, I have seen no real evidence that that is in fact what they are doing with the kind of commitment and clarity that they need to. I mean, you know, why don't you send the smuggler gangs and put them on the barge that, you know, has been set aside for the asylum seekers to do it? And then, you know, ship the barge up to the north of Scotland for all I, you know, who, who cares? Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. We're recording on Wednesday, the 14th of February. You have made a great decision to spend your Valentine's Day with Jeff Aberdeen and Andy McKeever. Good morning, both. Good morning from Centre Parks, would you believe? Oh, yeah. That's how I'm spending my Valentine's Day. Um, so our get I know I'm not standing on your toes, Callum, by uh, saying that our guest is Jim Murphy because you tweeted it yesterday. And I'm yeah. just I'm I'm just hoping, I'm just saying to Jim, keep it nice and concise because I'm going quad biking with my oldest Holly and I'm on a deadline here. So we're quad gonna be biking. we're gonna we're we're yeah, we're going quad biking. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. Wow. Uh, are you all right, Jeff? Knackered. <laughs> right. Well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, great to have you with us. <laughs> we should... well, I'm for Valentine's Day <laughs> and for the pod, indeed. I don't, I don't think I don't think my fiance is going to get much of a Valentine's Day. <laughs> Uh, right, we t- let's move quickly on from that. We do have um, former Scottish Labour leader Jim Murphy coming up on the podcast in a few minutes. Uh, so this week we are, we will focus on Labour, which has turned into, uh, well, quite a mess this week, as I'm sure you've been following in the news. So there's lots to discuss with Labour. We originally booked Jim Murphy because uh, this weekend we'll be at Scottish Labour Conference. We thought it would be a good preview. Uh, well, uh, Labour at the UK level certainly set in quite the context for Scottish Labour's uh, party conference coming up this weekend. So Jim Murphy's thoughts on all of that to come. But first, uh, if you were listening last week, if you're following us on Twitter at Hollywood Sources, you're aware that today is the day of a big announcement. Okay. Thank you for being with us. Here it is. Last summer, we brought you Hamza Yusuf, and you were brilliant. A hundred of you asking great questions, laughing at all the right moments, making us feel good. Um, I mean, enjoying the free canopies as well. Just a few weeks ago, we brought you our energy special. 300 of you in the room, focusing on clearly one of Scotland's most important sectors, and you delivered. You came along. In my view, you knew more than the politicians did. You asked good questions. We loved seeing you. And now... Here we are, announcing our biggest special yet. On March the 21st, we're coming to Edinburgh to tell the story, to hear memories and reflections, and to set the conversation for the future as well. We are marking 25 years of devolution, our biggest event so far. And we do have a huge, huge lineup. I'm not going to tell you who on this podcast, partly so you listen next week. You will recognize basically every single one of them. Some of the movers and shakers and key play- players of devolution over the last 25 years. Unlike any live show we've done before, we're rotating guests all night long. There are going to be loads of them. So many guests, and we would love for you to come along and join us and be part of what is such an important conversation. To get your ticket now, they are on sale, they're available for you. Go to hollyroodsources.com forward slash live. 
uh, and click through, buy your ticket. It's really, really simple. We're coming to Edinburgh. We're going to be at the Assembly Rooms. It's a premier venue and a premier part of the city for what is going to be a massive, massive night. Jeff, 25 years of devolution. Uh, we're going to talk about how it happened, what's happened since, what needs to happen in the future. This is an important conversation. Can you believe it's been 25 years, first of all? And has devolution lived up to it, do you think? First question, uh, no, I can't believe it's been 25 years. I was going through um, high school academy when, um, uh, you know, the the devolution took place. There was the yes, yes vote. I was, you know, a, a product of that period, really, and it really shaped my politics and shaped my views. So having the opportunity to discuss and raise with the people, the protagonists from that time is actually something that's going to be really fascinating. And I think for me, a lot of people that I speak to now, um, and particularly younger voters, they kind of view perhaps 2011, maybe even later than that, 2014 onwards from the referendum as their kind of involvement with devolution, with politics, with the prospects of constitutional change. But actually, you know, I really want to get into the to the guts and the bowels of how did we get there um, from that period. And there's two debates that I would highly recommend anyone to watch is the Usher Hall debate of 1992, um, uh, which is fantastic and, 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 and uh, in terms of setting the scene for what was to come. And then in 1995, uh, Lord George Robertson and Alex Salmon debated in the uh, Edinburgh Royal High School. Um, a really kind of fabled debate, actually, that was um, uh, both of them came out kind of swinging on the future of devolution, obviously, given their, their different political persuasions. These are the sorts of things I think will be fascinating for our listeners to understand. I mean, how did this all manifest itself into Holyrood being created? Yeah. And as you say, we will have some of the key protagonists there. I mean, you will, I cannot emphasize that you will recognize so many of the people that have said yes, they're coming along. So listen to the podcast, follow us on Twitter, announcements to come. Andy, you've said before on this podcast that this feels like the kind of the end of one chapter of devolution and we're on the cusp of a, of a new one. Just expand on that a little by way of sort of the, the context for what our event's going to be discussing. I've been in and around devolution since 2002. That's when I first started working in the Scottish Parliament, which at that point was up uh, the Royal Mile at the um, Assembly Rooms, uh, at the General Assembly, I should say. So, you know, I've been involved for a long time in various different roles, firstly working in party politics as head of comms to the Tories, uh, then trying to abolish the Tories, um, and Famously. then laterally as a lobbyist, obviously, which I am now. I think you can split the first... 25 years of devolution in two. You had the effectively the pre-independence referendum years and the post-independence referendum years. So from 99 till really 2011, when the SNP uh, and Jeff Aberdeen won their majority, <laughs> um, you had a situation where the Scottish Parliament was just getting started, really, to be honest, doing some good things, doing some things that were perhaps not so good, but actually talking more about policy than about the constitution. Constitution. Since 2011, all we've talked about really is the Constitution. So that's been the sort of two halves of uh, the first 25 years of devolution. I think we are now going to enter into a new era, and that's why this event is important, because devolution's at a bit of a crossroads. It, you know, a lot of people out there in the streets think that devolution's not really delivering for them, and that their politicians and their governments at Holyrood are not really delivering for them, and they've got a point. You know, it is an important time for devolution. We're probably going 
going to see over the next couple of years that the independence debate becomes more of a non-issue. If polls are to be believed, it's probable uh, that it will be effectively off the table uh, for a very long time. And we'll then have to get back to talking about policy and how to fix the country. Um, and so that will move us, I think, into the third era. You know, we've done the policy bit at the start. We've then done the constitutional bit. Maybe we're moving back to an era where we say, right, what what are we actually going to do here to fix this place? So um, it's both concerning and exciting at the same time. I think the quarter century comes at just the right time. But of course, most importantly, our event comes at just the right time too. I, I, I can't let you... <laughs> Off there, Andy. I thought that was a wonderful uh, summary of how we're both looking forward to this event. But I think you just said independence is going to become a non-issue. Can I remind you <laughs> that in every single poll just now, it is staying strong uh, anywhere between 47 to up to 53%. So whilst um, you're right to say that the election, if the polls are to believe, might mean the SNP aren't faring so well. I think it's unfair to say that constitutional change might not be a, a key factor oh, part of the well, going forward. So let me, just a clarification from you on that. And well, <laughs> let me clarify your clarification in that case then, Jeffrey. Also, this is also going to provide a wonderful segue for Callum into the Labour discussion, so he, he barely will even have to present. It's wonderful. Um, for me. Uh, two, two, two things on that. If there is a unionist majority at the Scottish Parliament, then independence is off the table because there is no mechanism to achieve it. Uh, and polls indicate at the moment there's a good chance of that. I do agree with you, however, that independent sentiment remains very strong. And that is precisely why the Labour Party would be completely insane not to pay attention to that and do something about that before the next holiday election. Because there are lots of these um, voters who are indicating uh, sentiment towards independence who are actually most likely to be perfectly perfectly content with an enhanced constitutional settlement that falls short of independence. That ultimately is how you put this issue to bed. Um, and obviously the Tories don't understand how to get there. But the big question is, does Labour understand how to achieve that? Big question, indeed. Jim Murphy coming up on the podcast. But yes, our devolution event, a really important conversation with some of the biggest names from the time and from now, to be fair. Uh, you can get your ticket right now, hollyroodsources.com forward slash live. Uh, go and snap them up, get them for your friends, bring everyone you can think of. We're so excited to come to the Assembly Rooms on the 21st of March in Edinburgh and have this conversation with you among others. Go to hollyroodsources.com forward slash live, snap up your tickets now and tell everyone you know. Right, let's get on to Labour then. Uh, yes, so this is our this is our preview episode really for the Scottish Labour Conference, which we're going to, we'll be recording at the pub on Friday night, so an episode coming your way over the weekend as well from Scottish Labour Conference. Um, Andy, I'm going to come to you first just on the context for this, because actually Labour is having a really difficult week um, at, at kind of UK level. And of course, we can get into how much that kind of washes off on the Scottish party specifically. Uh, but just as we record on Wednesday morning, Labour suspended a second parliamentary candidate over comments he allegedly made about Israel. This is Graham Jones, uh, the former uh, Labour MP, also facing an investigation. 
And this comes after Labour withdrew support for the party's candidate for the Rochdale by-election, that's Azar Ali, for apparently making anti-Semitic remarks. Um, so that is the context with which Sir Keir Starmer is, is wrestling with the Labour Party right now. What does that do for the Scottish Labour Party in what should be, you know, kind of big, exciting week building up to conference? Um, I actually think uh, not as much as their opponents might hope. Um, this is a. I think what it does do is it reminds us that this is not yet game set and match. There's quite a lot that can still go wrong for Keir Starmer. This has been a very difficult issue for him. He's obviously worked incredibly hard after the Corbyn years to make it clear that the Labour Party is not an anti-Semitic party. Um, he's worked extremely hard to uh, have the Jewish community and Jewish people be comfortable, uh, not only with voting Labour, but just simply with having Labour in power and to feel safe. And he has done, um, to be fair, I think you, you, know, you would say he's done a very, very good job at that. But uh, the conflict in Gaza, uh, and particularly uh, Israel's reaction over the last couple of months in particular, have made it very challenging for him. And, you know, it doesn't look like the fires that he's having to put out uh, are stopping anytime soon. So, you know, if you couple that with the fact that um, the economy, while still not good, is generally edging towards being better. And the fact that Rishi Sunak is likely to call an election at the most appropriate time for him to say that he's doing a good job. I don't think you can say that this is absolutely game set and match UK wide at the moment. In terms of the impact in Scotland, um, I think, generally speaking, because Anas Sarwar has taken a slightly different line on Gaza, um, and because him and Keir Starmer have managed to negotiate that reasonably well, I think the impact of what is going on um, in the by-elections and generally from a Westminster angle is a little bit less on the Scottish Labour Party than we might think. Okay. Um, Jeff, some of this must cut through. and I'm going to add in the other uh, Labour-related story this week, uh, which definitely is a, is a kind of Scot- has Scottish considerations. This is the director of uh, an influential Labour think tank suggesting that people smuggling gangs should be shipped to Scotland. Uh, John Simons from Labour Together uh, made the comments on a radio station. He said, here's the quote, I mean, why don't you send the smuggler gangs and put them on the barge that's been set aside for the asylum seekers and then ship the barge up to the north of Scotland. Who cares? Uh, He later apologised and said uh, uh, he didn't mean any negative insinuation uh, about Scotland. Um, Again, this is is yet another bit of backdrop for the Scottish Labour Conference coming up this weekend. On the by-election stuff, yeah, ill-judged comments. The party have belatedly dealt with it. I don't think it has much impact. Um, These things happen in politics. I've, I've been around politics too long where you have these ill-judged interventions, uh, people saying stupid things. And as long as the party nail it down, you tend to find that they're here today, gone tomorrow. The second of your questions, yeah, I mean, this the SNP will dine out on this over the over the weekend, no doubt, and uh, as you would expect. Um, and again, he's apologised. It was so stupid of him to say it, and, and a throwaway remark. And, uh, and you know, Anna Sauer must be tearing his hair out, actually, given uh, the context of, of the Labour conference. As long as they continue to distance themselves and criticise him for saying it, then I don't think it will be hugely long-lived in, in the public psyche, although, uh, as I say, the SNP will per- certainly try and elongate it. Far more impactful 
is neither of those issues in the Scottish Labour Conference. Far more impactful is the uh, uh, dropping of the Green Prosperity Fund and a particular aspect, sorry to go back to my hobby horse, but mm. this is something that I really want to, to put mm. to Jim Murphy and I'll be putting to a lot of Labour politicians this weekend. The 3% increase on windfall tax, which we touched on last week, OE UK, since we spoke, have now forecast that's potentially going to cost 42,000 jobs. An economic think tank yesterday covered in the Telegraph says it could cost actually 100,000 jobs and £20 billion of revenue for the Treasury. The Labour Party are saying that they're party business. They are the party of business at this election. Well, I'm not sure that reflects good business at all. And so I think uh, I'd like to understand a little bit more about what Labour are uh, thinking about mainly Scottish jobs and the, the, as I've said a hundred times on this podcast the jobs the careers the experience the innovation that is going to be required to accelerate us to get to net zero so I'm looking forward to posing these things to the Labour Party as opposed to this quite frankly things that will be here yeah. today and gone tomorrow as I say. I, I think Jeff leads us neatly in there to the issue of complacency I mean I'm not I, I'm not accusing Scottish Labour of being complacent because you know I speak to these people a lot and I don't actually think as individuals at the top of Scottish Labour I don't think they are complacent but there is a narrative creeping in generally speaking that Labour in Scotland and Labour in the UK are on the up and are headed for government and I think that every time that narrative creeps in an Asarwar needs to punch himself in the face because Yes, at UK level, that is clearly what looks to be happening. It looks like the Labour Party is heading for government and they're 20 points roughly ahead in most polls. That is not the case in Scotland. Most polls, Labour are still losing to the SNP. They are sneaking ahead in a couple of them, but they lose more polls uh, than they win. Uh, and in the head-to-head -head polling between Anas Sarwar and Hamza Youssef, Hamza Youssef wins most head-to-head -head polls. So you know, there is a need for Scottish Labour just to check themselves here and just say, look, we're actually not winning yet in Scotland. We might be trending in the right direction, but we're not winning yet. We're still actually losing a lot of polls, and we can't be certain we're going to we're going to win. And I think that's where they need to say to themselves, okay, we have done better. We are polling better, but who are these votes coming from? And I think if you look, if you delve deep enough into the polls, what is pretty clear is that I've, you know a great number of the of the Labour votes that they have put on their poll ratings over the last few months, over the last year, are old Tory voters. They're unionist voters who've been voting Tory because they thought a Tory vote was the best way to preserve the union. And they've now gone back to Labour. But Labour are converting nowhere near enough soft nationalists from the SNP. Soft nationalists from the SNP are more likely to stay at home at the moment than vote Labour. That's what the polls are telling us. Far be it for me to defend... <laughs> The Labour Party. But I think, Andy, just a couple of points. Uh, you say that um, in terms of approval ratings, Hamza's more popular than Anas. The last two polls, certainly the one that True North conducted with Salvation, showed the absolute opposite. That actually Anas Sarwar, okay, his, his net favourability was minus uh, four, I think it was. Hamza Yusuf, I think, was in the, the mid-20s. And I think another poll out last week showed that as well. So actually, I think his own personal approval ratings, whilst a lot of people still don't know who Anas Sarwar is, and I think he would accept that as well, he does trend better in that respect. Well, fair play. I think that might that might be right on the favourability ratings. I I, I was I had in my head the Redfield and Wilton head-to-head, -head, the sort of presidential-style head-to-head, which has usually got Hamza ahead. And I, and I was going to make a point, I don't like those 
questions because it skews always in favour of the incumbent because I think they ask, who do you think would make the better First Minister? Well, there is only one First Minister. Who, who do you think would make the better Prime Minister? And it always skews in favour of the incumbent. It's better to, I think, ask the approval ratings, in my humble opinion. But um, I accept your point on, 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 the, on the broader um, thing about you know uh, managing expectations, which we talked about previously. I, I'm really interested to know how Labour intend to do that, that chart, of course, I mean, they've lost one of their biggest policy pledges. Let's make no bones about it in this uh, uh, green prosperity. They say that they're still committed to it, um, but the, the means to deliver it, the $28 billion has been um, reduced significantly. So I, I think they need to find a, a policy pitch that can really chime with people. And I think, I think you know, the voters are more sophisticated than any of us ever given credit for. And, and I think that they want to see vision. And we know what Labour are against. So let's try and tease out them this weekend what they're for. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's going to be, there's no doubt that's going to be an accusation that Labour are going to face. We don't know what you stand for. And that's obviously what we discussed this last week, actually. That remains the case at UK level as well. I, I understand why Scottish Labour are keeping their powder dry until after the general election. It makes some sense to just let Keir Starmer do the running. And Asarwar can't win a Scottish election unless Keir Starmer's in Downing Street anyway. It just won't work because um, Sunak pulling a surprise win out of the bag will galvanise the SNP and Sarwar will then not win the Scottish election anyway. But if Labour do get in to Westminster, we can't then see a situation where Scottish Labour are still not saying anything. They have got to create a compelling platform and that does involve mainly economic policy and also I would argue public service, better public service policy as well. But critically, and I know that they don't like to talk about it because unionists don't like to talk about it, they have got to create something on the constitution. It might not necessarily involve lots of powers coming from Westminster to Holyrood because that's a tough sell at the moment. Um, but uh, powers going from Holyrood to Scotland's regions, I think, could form a significant part of that. But they have got to put their thinking caps on and come up with a really compelling offer that says this is what the future of Scotland's constitutional arrangements look like. Because at the moment, um, you know, the 50 odd percent who support independence are not being given any reason to stop supporting outright independence. And Labour are the only party that is going to provide them with it. Lots then to discuss with Jim Murphy, former Scottish Labour leader. He comes next on Hollywood Sources. If you don't want to hear these ads and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then you can pay $4.99 a month and you'll never hear the ads again. Just press subscribe at the top of your feed and support the podcast that way. (laughs) Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Yuffie X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Holyrood Sources podcast is brought to you in association with the Royal Bank of Scotland. The Royal Bank has been part of Scottish communities for almost 300 years, helping businesses thrive, growing the economy, supporting customers to manage their money and to fulfil their financial dreams. From the world's first overdraft to the first fully-fledged internet banking service, the Royal Bank of Scotland has always innovated to make banking easier for customers. Today, the Royal Bank supports around one in three Scottish businesses and is one of the largest banks in Scotland for personal customers. It also remains one of Scotland's largest private sector employers, contributing millions of pounds to the economy each year. As we approach the Royal Bank's third centenary in 2027, the bank's commitment to Scotland and to championing the potential of the people, families and businesses who call Scotland their home remains as strong as ever. Let's welcome to Holyrood Sources, Jim Murphy, who was the leader of the Scottish Labour Party from 2014 to 2015. He's been Secretary of State for Scotland. That was 2008 to 2010. Uh, he was an MP as well. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you. Great to see you, Callum and you, Jeff. Uh, lovely to have you here. Uh, are you well? What's keeping you busy at the moment? What are you up to nowadays? I am well. Thanks for asking. Most of my time is running a consultancy that I um, established a few years ago. We do two main things. We advise candidates all over the world in elections. So we only work for democratic candidates, um, preferably centre-left, people who aren't owned, bought or owned by the Chinese or the Russian government. Um, So... That's quite a tough place to be, but it's great fun and it keeps me out of um, British and Scottish politics. And then the second thing is we advise, I, I advise some boards about navigating politics and political risk. Fascinated by the first one, you know, advising candidates uh, around the world. I wonder if you can give us an idea of kind of your most interesting experience today. You know, what, what, what country have you, you know, advised, you know, candidates and what were the pressures that they were facing? You know, just give us an idea how it compares to Scottish and British politics. Yeah, it's always more fun to advise candidates in warm countries. <laughs> <laughs> the most remarkable thing is we were doing media training for a candidate and this candidate, who I won't name, had come to London to do their media training. We'd hired a studio and everything else to prepare them for the interviews. And in the lunch break during the training, this person said to me, Jim, when I was coming, the head of the army came to see me and said, you do know that you don't have to have an election to become president. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, wow. sounds like good, that sounds like good advice to me Jim just cut out all the faff <laughs> so I, I, this person asked my advice and I unusually I got to pretty good advice which was if you're put in place by the army you'll also be replaced by the army so fortunately the candidate didn't take up the army's invitation 
there's a whole book in all the scenarios and the eccentricities of advising candidates and elections across the world. All I would say is it's slightly different to UK and Scottish politics. I, we, we sometimes forget that, don't we? I mean, that is fascinating experience. But just, just you know, despite our frustrations and concerns and annoyance at our own politics that actually we are a democracy and that should be treasured in every sense of the world and uh, I, I can't see the Gordon Highlanders uh, making a pitch <laughs> to Hamza Youssef to say we can help you out here pal <laughs> I wonder Joe I know I know you've said you know in terms of the advice that you give to candidates around the world it kind of keeps you a bit out of, of UK and Scottish political kind of uh, advisory. Um, I imagine you're, you're counting your blessings on that this week because the Labour Party's had to suspend two of its parliamentary candidates over comments that they allegedly made at a, a meeting. Um, the Jewish Labour movement saying this had not been Labour's finest hour. What's gone wrong here? In, in your experience of advising candidates, presumably vetting candidates, and understanding election processes, how has this happened? Clearly something has gone wrong and the Labour Party has had a remarkable run over the past two and a half years. It's got lots of things right and it's been blessed by the mistakes of its opponents, both north of the border and south of the border. So this was a week where, maybe the second week actually, where Labour's good fortune and margin calls haven't worked out for it. Um, on, a, on the by-election candidate, I don't know enough about the selection. I, I do know the other guy who stood against him, Paul Waugh, who would have been a great candidate, a, an experienced journalist. I think Labour was slow to deal with Rochdale and pretty prompt to deal with the Heinburn guy. And it shows, actually, there is... What's happening in the Middle East, it's completely understandable to be furious you can be furious about the actions of both the Ham Hamas and Israel or one or the other, depending on your particular bent. It does show that in British society and in Scottish society, there is a latent anti-Semitism. There just is. Do the events of this week mean that Sir Keir Starmer has lost his ability to claim that he's changed the Labour Party? No, I think my view is that he's changing the Labour Party. It's a cliche, and I'm, I'm not in politics anymore, so I try not to talk in cliches, but <laughs> it is a process rather than an event. Mm. And so as new people join the Labour Party, you'd have to assume anyone joining the Labour Party now is, isn't a racist and isn't an anti-Semite. But the Labour Party has had this problem for a long time, and during the Corbyn years, that whole sentiment was empowered I'm not saying it's culture within the Labour Party, but it's far, it's far too common and there's still work to do. It has been a tumultuous week. I'm just going to add to that then, um, Anna Sarwar's latest comments. And actually, he said something similar when he was on this podcast uh, last year. Uh, he was talking to the New Statesman. He said, I can't afford an unpopular Labour government. I'm just quite interested, Jim, in your take on, um, I suppose... This general election year, but with an eye on the Scottish election coming in 2026 and how Anna Sarwar and Sir Keir Starmer need to sort of play off each other in the interests of each other and in the interest of the Labour Party uh, for this general election and looking ahead to the Scottish election in a couple of years' time as well. My gosh, that's a big question. <laughs> I mean, well, the antidote to an unpopular Labour government is a popular one, so mm. Anna and Keir 
working together to try and achieve that. The truth is, I don't know. And another great thing about not being involved in politics is you occasionally you can say, I just don't know. Mm. Because there are two scenarios under the, there's the one that underpins your question, which is labour and power, it may be difficult. There's the spending taps can't be turned on, global events and everything else. Is that the, the most beneficial environment for the Labour Party and the Scottish Parliament elections? And then the other scenario is a Labour government doing a good or reasonable job that doesn't seek friction with the Scottish government, the European Union or anyone else. That's more in keeping with the majority view of Scots on social policy. It's quite a benign environment to fight a Scottish election in. I know which one it'll ho I hope it will be. And I think the biggest difference will be that in Keir and his team, they will have a style of politics that I think Scots will find, most Scots will find quite reassuring, soothing, professional, ethical. Um, and I think that will probably help on us. But that's me stumbling over into wishful thinking rather than factual analysis. Let's add in to the conversation then a consideration of Josh Simons, uh, the director of Labour Together, uh, who suggested that people smuggling gangs should be shipped to Scotland. Uh, here's the quote. I mean, why don't you send the smuggler gangs and put them on the barge that's been set aside for the asylum seekers and then ship the barge up to the north of Scotland? Who cares? Uh, said Josh Simons of the influential Labour Together think tank, as it's been described. He has since apologised. What does that give away, Jim? Is, the, is, there, a, is there an underlying current of uh, disapproval when it comes to Labour's perception of Scotland and the importance of it? No, I think what it proves is there are some, some very clever people who are prone to idiocy. We've all met them. <laughs> I mean, there are some people with really posh degrees from very worthy universities that I wouldn't send to the shop for the messages without a, without a handwritten list. And it sounds like Josh may be one of them. This shows you that I'm slightly disconnected. I hadn't heard about this controversy or, yeah. or quote until you shared it with me. So I actually know Josh, and I quite like him. I don't think it reflect. well, I know it doesn't reflect a wider point of view within the Labour Party. It reflects someone very clever saying something really stupid. And I think occasionally yeah. we've all been there. I do think it reveals something wider, though. And it's one of the, one of the very few weaknesses I think the UK Labour Party have is, is going into this. They're so overwhelming favourites. It's almost priced in that they're going to be successful at the next government. And that's sometimes quite an unfortunate position to be in for a party. Because when you get interventions like the, the Rochdale by-election candidacy and then you get this chap saying this ridiculous thing then it is heightened so much in in the press because uh, there's, there's a sense that this will be the next government and and I, I find that that's quite a, 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 a an area of um, weakness that the Labour Party is going to have to contend with but if I may move on uh, uh, Jim Can I, can uh, I say something quickly on that Jeff? Is please, that please, just yeah. just a, an honest retort to it would be there's only three Labour leaders in the last century who have actually won an election yeah. um, from the Conservatives. This this deal is not yet sealed. There's a huge amount of labor still got to do. However, I'd rather be in a position where Labour was considered the incumbent because they're so far ahead than the alternative, because the alternative is pretty 
Yeah. On your point about work to be done, that's something we've been exploring for a while now in this podcast, actually. You know, there is an element of Labour Party having to come out and tell us a little bit more about what they're for and not just what they're against, because this has to be won, this contest. It has to be won. And I wanted to, to give you an example of this, and I'm calling in from the northeast of Scotland today, and I can tell you there is palpable anger across businesses, which will be publicised in the coming days, I have no doubt, around, yes, the, the ditching of the, the, the Green Prosperity Fund to the same level it was previously um, proposed, $28 billion, but this kind of uh, sneaking in this 3% additional windfall tax on uh, oil and gas operators, what they call a proper windfall tax at the Labour Party. Now, We've had analysis today by uh, Bank Stiefel saying that, that um, this is going to drive out investment, destroy up to 100,000 jobs and cost the Treasury up to £20 billion in revenue. OEUK, the industry body, say it's more near 42,000 jobs, but still this is huge amounts of uh, potential uh, job losses. Now, this proper windfall tax really bothers me because there is no windfall just now. Prices are much lower than they were in February 22 when Russia invaded Ukraine. And yet... Uh, these are the jobs that is the one thing the UK has and Scotland has as a USP to get us to net zero quicker, to accelerate energy transition. These are the people that are transitioning themselves. And I suppose I just wonder, the Labour Party are trying to make this uh, claim of the party of business. It's not really the party of business if one of your first acts is to put 100,000 jobs at risk, is it? That's some question, Jeff. I think you've answered your question as well as asking it. By the end of the first term of a Labour government, I think when you look back and think, what have they achieved? I think resetting the conversation on the carbon transition and making real progress, I think will be the single biggest achievement. A little bit like when people say, tell me about what the Blair government did. And I think by the end of the first term, and certainly by the end of the second term, the whole conversation about civil rights, equality, disability, sexuality, gender, so much of that had been civilised. And I think something similar will happen under transition in the Labour government. On the specifics, all I could do is encourage the people that you're referring to to continue to find ways to engage with Rachel Rees and, and Darren Jones and, of course, Anna Sawa. A little bit tongue-in-cheek, I would say, your question underpins why it's a little bit foolish to base the future of an independent country on an oil price. Um <laughs> particularly if the type of things that you're, you're worried about, Jeff, um, come to fruition. But look, I'm certain that Anas and Rachel will be discussing it um, behind the scenes. And yeah, we, certainly won't, we certainly won't want to get to, to arrive at a policy in the election that, one, significantly reduces the number of people working in the oil and gas industry, and two, that exposes them politically. I would just encourage businesses to continue to engage with Labour because the door has been wide open over the last two years to that sort of engagement. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's fair. And we, we were delighted to have uh, Keir Starmer and Ed Miliband and Anna Sarwar up in Aberdeen not that long ago. I'm very concerned about the immediacy of this because it's almost priced in perception-wise from industry and, and wider electorate perhaps that Labour are going to be the next government People are viewing this as going to be the policy. You know, people are taking investment decisions now on this. And we've had uh, three major companies reduce 
investment right now in the UK continental shelf. And and I think the point I'm really keen to, to, to make and to labour, excuse the pun, is that many of these companies, yes, traditionally oil and gas, are seeking to diversify, um, have invested heavily in, in Scotland offshore wind licences, investing heavily in carbon capture, and yet... Uh, they're only making money from the oil and gas business in order to you know, fund that. And if you take that away from them, where is the money going to come from? Because Labour have tacitly agreed that there isn't the public finances by the very decision to reduce the, the 28 billion. So I do think we need that pragmatic approach. And I'll be in Glasgow on, on Friday making this case directly to Anna Sarwar as well, because it's so important, not just for oil and gas sake, we all want to transition to new energies. It's because these are the people, these are the skills, this is the company base that is going to underpin the green transition. And if we get this right, you know, we could be a global leader, get it wrong, mm-hmm. and we'll be paying more for carbon imports for many years as we start from scratch to build a domestic renewables uh, industry at scale. Shall we sort of tie the, the energy conversation, which is one that, you know, we, we've had on the podcast at, uh, at length, and it's, it's of vital importance. And one of the things, Jim, to, to consider with you is, I suppose, the level of security that that would provide. Often, in the last couple of years, we've talked about uh, you know our dependence on 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 energy importing uh, and the holds that Russia has on um, on various countries in terms of turning on and off the taps kind of at its at its leisure at Putin's will. You were a foreign office minister actually uh, a few years ago. In terms of how you consider the the kind of global security situation now, are you joining this? apparent army of of people warning that we need to be ready to to fight that conflict is on the not distant horizon that things are unsafe and insecure i think we've had a, a prolonged period of relative stability of course there have been parts of the world where things have been awful um one or two we've spoken about already but i think things are changing like, as you say, I was a foreign office minister. I was, at the time, I was responsible for relationships with Russia. When Russia invaded Ukraine again, the sort of democratic world responded. If China invades Taiwan, how is the democratic world going to respond? Because Russia could cut off energy supplies, but China can do so much else. In all our household appliances and in electric cars and much else, we have Chinese modules, Internet of Things modules. These can be controlled remotely. Mm. There's all sorts of ways in which we're embedded with the Chinese economy in a way that, even though Russia, of course, much closer and on our own continent, was only superficially engaged beyond energy imports. This is a medium-term problem in terms of it's with us now and will last at least for the medium term. So we're going to have to get used to it. And I regret to say that defence spending will have to increase. Our intelligence services will have to have more investment. Our diplomacy and our development work has to be turbocharged. And I'm looking to a Labour government to do um, as much of that as possible. Um, I think the current government, who have got some of this right, I'm not going to kick them for it. They've got some of it right. But because they've been in power for so long, they're not, they're not really thinking afresh. They're thinking incrementally rather than strategically. And I think that's one of the changes we'll have to see. We've recently published the Global Parliament Index. Sorry for um, um, product placement here. But we've looked at every government, every government in the world, analysed their manifestos, their policies, their philosophy, and, and grouped them 
And then we've transposed that onto a parliament of a thousand people and called it the Global Parliament Index. And the single biggest group in that parliament is populists and autocrats. This year, where more people will vote than in any year in human history, the world will look different in Hugmanay this year than it did on New Year's Day this year. Dramatically different. And it's a genuine worry. When you think about what is the next government going to be handling, there's probably no more important issue than this. Because the first responsibility of any government is to keep your people safe. That's it. Number one. And that's going to be more difficult than it has been for many decades. Wow. I mean, that that's, that's fascinating, Jim, I shall listen to you speak about these different... <laughs> kind of competing priorities and, and concerns internationally. I, I just wonder if, if you have any views on what the Labour Party has to be doing with its future relationship with the EU. There is a pure politics at play in terms of getting over the line in this general election. And I recognise that there's perhaps a trap uh, being set there by the Tories in terms of the EU as a, as a political issue in this general election. But Assuming that the, the Labour Party do win, would you like to see a much closer relationship with the EU and how might that look like in your mm. view? The one place they will undoubtedly be closer is on defence and security um, for reasons that I, I don't think you've got time in the podcast to go into, but reasons for interoperability, um, spending, nuclear deterrent and much else besides. So I think they will do formal treaty with the European Union on defence cooperation. Jeff, you've advised government ministers and I've been a government minister. Many of the decisions you take are late at night at your desk over a red box. The contents of your red box and you're given options by civil servants. The current government ministers, the UK government ministers, look for the option that's going to cause friction with the EU because it excites the Daily Express and the Daily Mail. I'm assuming in Scotland, the equivalent of the red box, they look at the paperwork and think, what's going to cause friction with the UK? Because that will excite the national. And you've got to keep the national newspaper on side if you want to be a leader <laughs> of the SNP one day, it appears. So we've got two governments where ministers late at night, when they're looking at the paperwork, look for friction. It's just not where Labour will be. And a series of small decisions, Labour ministers will do what, is the right public policy on its engagement with Europe rather than what ignites a Eurosceptic fire. And that, as a consequence, will draw a lot of the energy out of the, the relationship and they'll find practical ways to cooperate. For those who are hoping that there'll be another referendum, I'm sorry to tell you that you'll, you will be disappointed. Obviously, I voted to remain because I believe in unions. Um, I'm pretty consistent about it. I believe in a union at the workplace, therefore you should join a union. <laughs> I believe in a, a, a union on the island, therefore you should stay in a union. And I believe in a union in the continent, and therefore we should have stayed in that union. So it's just an intri intrinsic sense of social, social solidarity gets me to an affection for unions. But I suspect we will be in the union of the UK for a prolonged period, and those who want us back in the union of Europe are likely to be disappointed. 
I'm really keen to get our listeners' take actually on what you're saying. So, uh, a reminder of our email address, uh, and we'll read out your emails in our next episode. The email address is hello at hollywoodsources.com uh, to reflect on what Jim Murphy's telling us. Uh, Jim, on this episode, uh, we've announced our, our our special for twenty marking 25 years of devolution. Um, unbelievably, it's been a quarter of a century. So, we're going to tell the story of devolution with some of those who have, uh, you know, lived through it, been a part of it, been instrumental in it. I wonder if just if I could ask you for a reflection on on 25 years of the Scottish Parliament and whether it's kind of lived up to expectation. What was that expectation? Has it done well? And, you know, actually, if I could, a consideration on what the Scottish Parliament will look like in 25 years uh, from now. Hmm. Has it been perfect? Absolutely not. But this is an important milestone and we should, I think we should use it. Yes, for reflection, as, as you always do on anniversaries, Let's think about what more can be achieved. When I look at the Scottish Parliament and the powers that it has, I'm genuinely very disappointed. In particular, on education. There are too many children from poorer families and poorer communities who suffer enormous educational disadvantage. So let's not treat it like some coothy, conceited celebration of a quarter of a century. Let's use it as an opportunity to challenge the institution and the people within it. What are you going to do to deliver on the dream of devolution? And for me, there's no more important thing within that or no more important cause than than generational disadvantage. And I think it's failing on generational disadvantage. It's only as good as the people and the policies and priorities within it. And it's not been good enough. I've yet. Food for thought. Uh, Jim Murphy, thank you very much. Thank you for all of your considerations. Great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for your time. Cheers, Callum. Cheers, Jeff. Uh, Andy, just a quick concluding thought then from you on on Scottish Labour, on where Anna Sarwar goes from here. You know, we've, we've kind of been reflecting, um, something he told this podcast actually when we had him on last year, but in a recent interview with the New Statesman, he was saying, I can't afford an unpopular Labour government. Um, he says that sort of binning off the SNP, I'm paraphrasing, defeating the SNP depends on Labour delivering at Westminster. It's a, it's a really sort of intricate picture for Anna Sarwar to kind of piece all together if he is to go on to become First Minister? Intricate, yes, but in some ways also quite simple because, and the reason I say it's quite simple is he knows exactly who his audience he knows his target audience he has to get soft unionists and he has to get soft nationalists, he has to get people who've been voting Tory but should be voting for him and people who've been voting SNP but should be voting for him, and as I said earlier, he's kind of got that first group by default, that's already happened and what he really needs to laser focus on now is that second group he has got to get people who've been voting SNP but don't necessarily hate the UK to start voting Labour. Even if they still poll for independence, he can handle that. But they've got to start voting Labour. Now, Anas Sarwar is a very credible guy and he's got very credible people around him. He's got people in key positions. He's got Jackie Bailey on health. That's really important. Michael Mara and Daniel Johnson on the economy and on finance. We heard from Sarah Boyack last week on Net Zero, which is going to be a, a critical aspect as well. He has the the foundation for a really good, solid 
cabinet, but he doesn't have the narrative for it yet. And he has got to create that narrative over the next two and a half years that says to these SNP, soft SNP, soft nationalist voters, we can be your home now. We can give you what you need in terms of policy, but we can also give you what you need in terms of Scotland's constitutional arrangements. That's what he now needs to do. It's doable, but he needs to do it. Uh, Andy, thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff, as well. Right, don't forget then, get your tickets for 25 years of devolution. We cannot wait to see you in Edinburgh on the 21st of March for what is going to be the defining event of this anniversary. Don't miss it. You will be among guests with whom you're very, very familiar. Believe me. We'll see you there. Go to hollywoodsources.com forward slash live. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.